0: As you know, and as I said earlier, I returned this morning from a brief but very intense rabbinic solidarity mission to Israel. When there, we volunteered and picked vegetables that were later distributed to hotels, overwhelmed by the 100,000 Israelis displaced from their homes in the south and the north, and as well to army bases, also overwhelmed by the unprecedented call-up of reserves. We walked the pathways of the once-thriving Kibbutz Kfar Aza that was attacked on October 7th and where 68 people were murdered because they are Jews. And a number were taken hostage by Hamas terrorists. And where we also heard promises that the kibbutz will be rebuilt. We traveled to the army base that cares for soldiers killed in battle, but that was forced to care for thousands after the October 7th massacre, and where one of the rabbis there told us he can never drink chocolate milk ever again, because hundreds of victims arrived in a refrigerator truck emblazoned with the Shoko milk graphics and logo. And that was only part of one day. Many of those details I described in my weekly Torah thoughts. To reiterate from yesterday's message, I have seen things in these last days that no one should ever see. And I have also seen things that everyone needs to see, and I would add, hear about. Before I left on this trip, people asked if I was afraid for my safety and some were even nervous about my going. So that's a shout out to my parents. I was not, and I am still not afraid. And here is why. Even during war, I feel safe in Israel. It is home, and even during the worst of times, one feels comfortable at home. I was afraid, however, that what I might see would be unsettling, and some of what I did see and hear was so disturbing that I had trouble sleeping all of those nights. I was especially nervous that the situation is worse than I thought or imagined, and in some ways it is. The end game is unclear. Israel's political leadership is vacuous, and in other ways it is not the people of Israel are resolute and strong and inspiring. And despite the extensive trauma and ongoing war, I came away even more inspired by Israel and the Jewish people. First, let me talk briefly about the unsettling. Every Israeli I spoke with believes, believes in the need to eliminate Hamas's military capabilities, and in particular, its ability to terrorize Israel and its citizens. And despite the American press describing Israel's military actions as retaliatory, they are not. They are an exercise of Israel's sacred obligation to defend its citizens. Everyone agrees about the importance and need to return the hostages to their families. People might wonder how this will all end, or even think some of the military actions are too severe, but everyone is supportive of the Army and its soldiers. Still, I was surprised by the level of anger and disillusionment with the current government. It seems to cut across political lines. Most believe that Netanyahu's day of reckoning will come. Let me be clear. The failures of Israel's leadership and the many, many mistakes made allowing so many Hamas terrorists to massacre so many people on October 7th and the funds that were knowingly allowed to go to Hamas does not excuse Hamas. The continued insistence that Palestinian statehood is not in Israel's moral and strategic interest does not explain Hamas's murderous ideology and anti-Semitism. We must not confuse how this happened with why. Some of the hows can be leveled at Netanyahu and his response, and and his cronies, and even IDF, at IDF leaders, although the latter have already taken responsibility for their failures. The wise, however, and this is the important point to hold on to, the wise remain Hamas's ideology of murder and hate. Israel's Israelis' anger at their political leadership is palpable. You can feel it. And I think this is because it stands in stark contrast with the extraordinary leadership of Israel's ordinary citizens. Organizations shifted their focus overnight. New charities emerged. Strangers showed up to wash soldiers' uniforms when they returned to their bases. Award-winning chefs cooked meals for soldiers. Where the government failed to step in, the people rushed into the void. Take but these three examples. In Jerusalem, we met with Adir Schwartz, a community leader. In a few days, he and others built what is now a command center for volunteers, taking over the film school complex. What was on October 8th the only one floor now occupies almost the entire building. 6,000 volunteers help get personal gear to soldiers, tend to the needs of the 25,000 evacuees housed in 63 different Jerusalem hotels, and help local Jerusalemites. There was no such organization two months ago. Now it is a vast network of people helping others, supplying 40,000 meals every day to those in need. They set up the clothing donations as a clothing store with a coffee shop. And he spoke to us about the guiding principle of their efforts, kavod ha'adam, respect for the human being. Every act of generosity is guided by this idea. That is why he said it is a clothing store, rather than piles of handouts. He said, the worst feeling during the war is to feel alone. And then he added, we have not felt alone since day one. We are one people with one heart. Nadir concluded, it could have happened to any of us. Imagine this. We watched as people ran in and out, running volunteer errands, lifting boxes for deliveries or shopping for dresses. There was no obvious distinction to me who was a giver and who a recipient. Perhaps I wondered, in some not so mysterious way, even the givers are recipients. We are one people. And he thanked us for coming and then told us that he sees our difficulties and struggles. He knows about the rising anti-Semitism in America. He feels our pain, he said. In the midst of this war, he is thinking beyond and about others, even those thousands of miles away. We are one people with one heart. We then met with evacuees at the Orient Hotel. The Orient is among Jerusalem's fanciest hotels. Its owner decided to prioritize the housing of evacuees, even though the government does not pay enough to cover the true costs. Almost all the residents of Kibbutz or Hanair are living there in this hotel. Imagine walking into a conference room only to discover that it has been converted to a nursery school room and a lobby made into a makeshift playground for nursery school kids. A girl rollerbladed outside of our meeting. One kibbutz leader said to us, it's a nice hotel, but we miss our kitchen. We miss our garden. Our teenagers don't like the city schools and even penned a protest letter that they want to return now. Through tears, they described what happened to them on October seventh. Their kibbutz was not directly attacked. Still, they hid in safe rooms. The security team members grabbed their weapons and kissed their partners goodbye. Many raced to their cars and hastily threw their children into the back seat, only stopping to buckle their seatbelts when they were miles and miles away from the kibbutz. They are traumatized by that day. They are traumatized by the sporadic rocket attacks that has continued throughout the years. They are traumatized by living in a hotel and if they will be able to stay in the Orient until they can in fact return home. And when will it be safe to go back to their beloved kibbutz? And they are traumatized that they may be forever afraid to go back home. The Israel Trauma Coalition is working overtime. And yet, these kibbutzniks are faring better than most. Always remember, they said to us, our strength is our community. They have each other to rely on. And even though they are not home, they are together. We then traveled to Tel Aviv and to what is now called Hostage Square, and there we met with the Hostages and Missing Families Forum. 160 families are represented by this forum. Its goal is to make sure that the plight of the hostages is never forgotten. The danger is the human heart will grow accustomed to the fact that 130 hostages remain in captivity. They wish to press, pressure the Red Cross to act. There are art displays filling the square and a giant table set with place settings and empty chairs for each of the hostages. We entered a large tent and sat in a small circle and listened intently to one story. We heard from Dani Miran. He is the father of Omri, who was taken hostage by Hamas from his home on Kibbutz near Oz. Dani lives in the Galilee and is a farmer. His wife died 30 years ago, he told us. On October 7th, he messaged his son, I see that there are rocket attacks near you. And Omri responded, yes, don't worry, Abba. Then Danny turned on the news and saw that Hamas terrorists had infiltrated into Israel. He messaged Omri again, who responded, yes, they are all over the kibbutz. And after several minutes, Danny messaged his son, it's your father, I'm worried, answer me. That was the last message he, re- he sent. Later that day, his daughter-in-law's parents called to tell him that his son was abducted, but his daughter-in-law, Liché, and granddaughters were okay. The girls are two years old and six months old. And he said to us, I was happy that my granddaughters were alive, but I felt as if a knife went through my heart. My son is a hostage. He continued, It was only on Monday when I had the courage to ask my daughter-in-law what happened after my last message. And she told me that Hamas terrorists threatened to kill a neighbor if they did not come out of their safe room. And so Omri's family exited the room. Then the terrorists threatened to kill all of them if Omri did not go with them. He felt he had no choice. Liche said to her husband, I love you. I'll protect our girls. We're waiting for you. Don't be a hero. By this time, a large crowd had started to form around us. People leaned in to hear Donnie's story. And he then said to this group of rabbis, you all look so sad. Most of us had been crying since he told us of his last words to his son. And he said, you should not be sad. We are a strong people. You are here so that we can give hugs to each other, and never forget, we are one people." And then he continues, Let me tell you the story about the flag that was raised over the Western Wall in 1967. I was in the paratroopers brigade that fought in that battle. Donnie said, Most people don't know how we got that flag. Before we marched to the wall, we were sitting in a bunker, and we were talking about how we should have a flag. And a family, mem- a family was also in this bunker and overheard our conversation. And one family member said, I have a flag. Come with me. So they went up to his apartment. But first he insisted that we make Kiddush and have some wine. Can you imagine this? And we said the blessing and drank the wine, and then he gave us the flag. And the man then said, I have been saving this flag since 1948 when we lost Jerusalem, hoping and praying for this day. Don't be sad. We are a strong people. And with that, we jumped up, formed a circle, and started singing and dancing, and we shouted, Kol ha'olam kulo gesher tzar ma'od v'ha'ikar lo lefachet klau. The whole world is a narrow bridge, but the essence is not to be afraid. And we sang, and we danced, and the crowd took videos and pictures, and we hugged Donnie, and we hugged each other. The Jewish people are inspiring, and the Jewish people are resilient. Draw strength from these stories, draw strength from our resilience. The psalmist declares, Adonai will grant strength to the people. Adonai will bless the people with peace. Even though we pray for peace, shalom comes not before, but after strength. And we have an extraordinary amount of strength. And we will emerge even stronger. And then we continue to impray- I continue to pray we will find peace. But first and for now, let us focus on the strength. And God grant us strength.